Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. Uh, we've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm joined by our co host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Yes, and in um, in our first segment, we're planning to speak with City Council Member Sandy Nurse. Uh, Sandy has a long history as a radical activist and community organizer in, in Bushwick, uh, Brooklyn. She was elected to City Council last year and is leading some important battles from her new position as chair of the Sanitation Committee. With war raging in the Ukraine and concerns growing that this could turn into a nuclear conflict between the U.S. and Russia, we will later talk in the show with longtime peace and justice activist Leslie Kagan. Forty years ago this spring, Leslie organized the largest protest in U.S. history against nuclear weapons. We're going to learn more about that and what it will take to revive the peace movement today. But first, we turn to city council, where a large new cohort of progressive city council members, most of them young and women of color, have taken office this year. Among them is Sandy Nurse, representing District 37 in Bushwick, Cypress Hills, and East New York. But we're we're not um, seeing Sandy yet here with us. So yeah, we're uh, we're having we're just having a, a couple of technical uh, problems. Uh, we're going to try to get uh, Sandy on the line with us. Um, uh, so if you just uh, bear with us on, on, on that for a minute. Um, while, while we're doing that, uh, Amba, can you give us a, a quick update on some coverage you've been doing of the upcoming uh, Amazon labor union election that will be held out at Staten Island starting March 25th? You had some great coverage last week. If um, fill people in a little bit on that and just the incredible organizing that's taking place around that, um, which you've also been uh, following for, for months and We'll try to get Sandy up here in a minute. Absolutely. Well, last week, Amazon Labor Union, which is an independent group of individuals, basically all workers at Amazon at the warehouses on Staten Island. Amazon has four warehouses on Staten Island with about 10,000 workers total. Um, and the workers there have formed Amazon Labor Union, some of the workers, and they're working to organize a, a proper union with the National Labor Relations Board. To do that, they have to vote. Um, every All of the, the workers at Amazon or at the facility that's voting um, have to uh, take place in a vote, and that's going to happen from March 25th to March 30th this month. That is huge. That is historic. That is the, only the second time a vote like this has happened after Bessemer, Alabama, um, who's going to have a revote at the same time? So a lot is going on. Bessemer is having a revote um, in their union election, which was the first um, ever in Amazon's history, because it was proven that Amazon tinkered too much with the election. So meanwhile, in New York, organizers are gearing up for the election. And I went last week um, to uh, a office in Manhattan, in West Manhattan, where they were campaigning for the first time and they had to get basically the phone numbers of all 6,000 workers at the JFK 8 facility um, via a court order from the NLRB because Amazon wouldn't release them otherwise. So they got those phone numbers and now they're going through the list and calling every single worker. Um, so far, they're uh data says that they're they've gotten a 69 percent yes from those calls but uh 
of course, we have to take into account the attrition, the attrition that will probably happen with Amazon scare tactics, um, which I've also been covering. And you can check out our coverage on independent.org. Um, last week, Amazon hosted a party with all of the lawyers who are, you know, working in the legal in the in the Department of Labor. So fun stuff, independent.org, if you want to hear more about that. But I think our 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 first guest is here. Welcome. Yes, so we ha- we do have uh, Sandy Nurse uh, on the line with us now. Um, so uh, there's so much uh, we c- you know, we could say about Sandy. Just uh, briefly, uh, she's um, she was elected to city council last year. Uh, and, um, she's a part of a large new uh, cohort of progressive city council members. Many of them uh, women of color who've uh, taken office. And she represents District 37 in Bushwick, Cypress Hills, and East New York. Uh, Sandy was also a protest leader here in New York at Occupy Wall Street and uh, during the Black Lives Matter uprisings in 2014 and 2020. And um, she also founded the Mayday Community Space in Bushwick and BK Rot, an an organic composting service in Bushwick that provided jobs for uh, local youth. She now chairs City Council's Sanitation Committee, which oversees the largest municipal sanitation department in the country. What a turn of events. And we're looking forward to hearing her. Uh, from her in a, in a moment about her first two and a half months on city council and why she's passionate about her new position as chair of the sanitation committee. Among other things, she's leading the fight to reverse mayor Adams proposed cuts to the sanitation department budget. Sandy, welcome to WBAI radio. Hi everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, John. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, uh, so, uh, can you talk first of all uh, about what it means to be appointed chair of the city council's uh, sanitation committee and your long involvement with projects related to trash collection? Yes, uh, I'm super excited to be in this position as chair of the largest municipal trash collection system in the country. And uh, it really is building off of work I've been doing for the last 13 years in um, trying to establish viable, sustainable organic collections systems at the neighborhood level for a long time um, through one of the programs that uh, you mentioned, John, a project uh, I helped start called BK Rock. Um, because we, ne- we up here in North Brooklyn, and particularly in Community Group 4 and 5, we didn't actually ever have access to the Brownwood program. So um, our community hasn't really had a chance to participate in this, uh, to, to experiment and, and enjoy the benefits of separating our food waste out of our trash. Um, and I'm really excited to, to, to really have this opportunity to think about and, and work on trying to get this right in New York City. This is, this is a, an exciting challenge. It, it, it has to be done. It must be done. We adopted many goals. The city adopted goals years ago, zero waste goals that we should be putting up from investments in. And I'm so excited to really try to achieve this in one of the you know, oldest cities uh, that's constantly changing, people constantly in and out, a growing city, um, and one that is facing a lot of challenges. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to put my brain on this and, and really ensure that all of New York City is able to 
separate their food waste and that we move towards that zero waste future that I know that we're all going to get to. We want to hear about that, Sandy, um, but now let's get down to some details. So what happens after your bags of recycled stuff are taken away by garbage trucks? Where does it go and what is done with it? And then the non-recycled stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, well, the story of New York City trash is very fast. It's very expensive. Um, the public sector alone collects about 12,000 tons of trash per day. It's an uh, enormous amount of material uh, workers, trucks, logistics that have to go into play to ensure that our streets are clean and that our trash is um, taken and, 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 and disposed of. It goes to a lot of places. It unfortunately still goes to some incinerators. It goes to regional landfills, mostly in Pennsylvania, upstate New York, as far as Ohio. It used to go to other countries at different points, but those countries no longer want to take our trash. Um, and rightfully so. And it is very expensive. We spend about $440 million of our city budget to containerize trash and send it somewhere else to be dealt with. So it's an enormous system. And, and again, that's just the public sector. Um, the private sector, which encompasses all sorts of businesses, storefronts, big uh, stadiums, and giant, giant amount of food waste that is produced every day, uh, recycling, construction debris, there is so much waste that is being generated here in New York City, and it is an astronomical expense for us to uh, deal with it. Mm. And, and speaking of expenses, uh, let's talk about Mayor Adams' new budget or proposed new budget, which envisions generating around $27.5 million in savings by suspending the planned expansion of, of the of the organic sub uh, uh, program, uh, the organic uh, recycling uh, program. Um, your 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 thoughts on the the potential savings and, and what might be lost? Yeah, it, it certainly is very disappointing to see the program stop and not expand. I think that it's it's an unfortunate scenario. Although the mayor and I agree that the way this program has been rolled out has been very choppy. It's been a start-stop. Um, it's never really had the full commitment of the city and the city government in doing it right and investing in it um, and investing in the upfront costs that we need to work on both education, understanding human behavior, and really making it something that is, is has to be done. The mayor is... Uh, of course, able to get these savings. And his argument is that, look, these trucks aren't being filled up with food waste. People are not participating in this program. And that's true. Um, but there are a lot of barriers to participation. So if you are a tenant and you want to participate in the program and you are within one of those zones where the brown bin exists, uh, and if you're a landlord or your building manager doesn't want to participate in it, you cannot participate in it because it's not mandatory, this is a voluntary program. And so there's a lot that we could do to prevent, uh, prevent folks from not being able to participate. Um, and I really hope that the mayor really understands that these are not negotiables. We cannot negotiate away our future here in New York City. We have to, um, unfortunately, we have to do the upfront investments. They are costly um, and we, 
we know that these are hard things to do. Um, dealing with the amount of food waste that is generated in New York City just within households is, is, is an, an incredible undertaking. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And when things don't work out, we need to go back to the drawing board and we need to find what is the issue and look at finding the resources to address it. Um, because the zero waste goals that we have adopted are not something that we can just um, decide to dibble dabble in every other year. We have to have a full commitment from this administration to addressing the climate crisis, to building resiliency, to addressing environmental injustices. And one of the, the most concrete, tangible ways we can achieve this goal is to get organics right. It is, it is not like recyclable plastics, you know, where it's confusing sometimes about what is recyclable and what isn't. Food waste is not denied. It's, it's undeniable. You take it and you compost it or you process it. It has a product and an outcome that's unmistakable. And so it is a, a worthwhile investment for this city um, to do and, and not forsake it for short-term savings that will hurt us in the long run. Right. Also, want to ask you about... Uh... Um, sanitation equity and, and the way different neighborhoods are treated uh, differently. Um, uh, last last July, we were uh, joined on our show by uh, Kristen uh, Richardson-Jordan, another one of your uh, new colleagues on city council uh, elected in uh, Harlem last year. And um, uh, she spoke about that as, as one of her concerns. Uh, she ran on, 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 on concerns about rats and trash. And let's see if we can uh, hear from her in this clip. And um, my district is very in need of, of services, of um, just basic equity. I mean, really basic equity. I mean, we the environmental racism has affected Harlem. Uh, we actually, you know, see that we have higher asthma rates due to old housing stock and the lack of upkeep of, of NYCHA buildings and also non-NYCHA buildings. And then we actually receive... Um, just uh, we have less trash cans. We receive less trash pickups and all of that factors into sanitation. Okay, so that was Kristen Richardson-Jordan, a uh, uh, new city council member from Harlem uh, on the Independent News Hour in July. Um, can, can you all talk about how uh, uh, reps from different uh, parts of the city are uniting uh, uh, with, with you as the chair of the Sanitation Committee to fight for sanitation equity? Well, I would just say that one of the things I wanted to mention was that, you know, the civil rights movement and, and trash issues are, have been very closely tied. I mean, Kristen comes from a district um, in upper Manhattan and further up where um, people used to burn uh, trash in the streets as riots because they weren't getting sanitation, right? The young lords. Um, we saw in Memphis, the sanitation workers is, is a big part of the civil rights um, story. And so trash and the way trash is handled and which communities have the burden of trash infrastructure and trash uh, systems put in their, in their backyard is a really long, long history. And it's still happening. Um, North Brooklyn, the South Bronx, Southeast Queens, uh, communities that are Latino, uh, black, uh, these are communities that have held over 40% of the waste infrastructure of the city. 
Um, we hold the transfer stations, so those are where the big trucks come and dump it, dump their trucks, and it gets sorted out and packed up and put into other trucks that are going further. Um, with our uh, transfer facilities that are along rail stations, these are mostly condensed into the areas of the South Bronx, North Brooklyn, Southeast Queens. There was a bill passed, uh, the waste equity law that was passed to try to address this by limiting the amount of waste that could come to a, one of these four communities. Uh, and there was supposed to be a movement to build a marine transfer station facility in Manhattan. Of course, there was a lot of not in my backyard. The, the, you know, Manhattan got a park out of this in order to accept a transfer station uh, they were promised a park. That park has been built, and no marine transfer station has been built. So what we're seeing is that the boroughs and the different neighborhoods that are more affluent, um, they have a more powerful voice in the city because of the money that is within their communities. The, these communities are able to say, we're not having that infrastructure here, whereas our communities um, aren't. And so we need to continue to stay on top of this. I know that organics is like the thing we all want. We all want, you know, composting, but we really have to have communities take on their fair share of something that we are all generating. And predominantly, wealthy communities are producing more trash. They have more buying power. They are purchasing things more than our um, folks who don't have a lot of uh, disposable income. So these are disparities that are based along um, racial lines, class lines, and are not, you know, these are struggles that are, that are very present today. Um, in April, we'll be having a hearing on this equity and try to get some updates on, on the promises that have been made and, and why they haven't moved forward. Okay. Can you tell us, can people go to that hearing? Yeah, it's a public hearing. It'll be on April 20th and beyond 420. <laughs> so, so, so much to know, celebrate. Yeah, lots to celebrate. And, you know, bring your bring your testimony first, and then go do whatever you got to do later. <laughs> well, tell us, Sandy, about what composting and mm, I don't know, community oriented, I guess, trash collection, but really composting could look like as far as how it relates to gardening and um, how that could grow in our city, what it could look like, and why it doesn't. Yeah, I, I think New York City is really blessed in having a very active community garden movement, urban agricultural movement that's been here forever and certainly longer than I've been alive. Um, but it's 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 something to be treasured and valued. I think in terms of composting, these are places where mostly volunteers, community members, neighbors who want to do these things have built their own systems to to make it a reality, make this accessible for their community and their neighbors, which is great, but it's not sustainable, right? And it's not at scale. So you're, what your free bin system in a garden can do is nice, but it doesn't solve the bigger issue of millions and millions of people who are generating food waste. We need large public work systems that are well-resourced to handle the volume that we're talking about. I mean, I think it's great if people have a system in their backyard, if you're lucky enough to have a backyard, um, if you're lucky enough to live in a building um, that either you own or if your landlord is kind enough to let you do it, um, that's great. And community gardens will play a role. They're playing a role for educating people, for people to experiment and understand what it is and see the process at, at a very small scale 
um, all the way through. These are great education spaces, um, and they, they will continue to be a part of this process. But what we need and what uh, is, is, is important is for us to think about the scale. We have to collect um, volumes, tons. I mean, you know, there's one visual that I always refer to about imagine a hundred subway cars packed with food waste. That's, that's just what the private sector is doing on a daily basis. Wow. My right? So that's not going to be taken care of in gardens. That has to be taken care of by no a strong functioning municipal system that is able to meet the, the goals that I laid out. Yeah, that's a subway, subway train I don't want to be on. And where does it, then what happens to it? Where does it, where does well, it Most of this stuff is landfill still. I mean, we okay. have a commercial, what they call commercial organic recycling law uh, that has come into play and it is supposed, it's, it's, it comes in, uh, into effect in phases. So it starts with very large buildings and stadiums, convention centers, and then it starts to whittle its way down um, in intervals to eventually to cover all private sector, all commercial spaces. Um, and that can really only take effect if we continue to move forward with things that we pass the commercial waste zones, making sure that our Department of Sanitation has the staffing it needs to, to oversight, to provide oversight on these systems. Um, but a lot of it's being landfilled right now in the private sector, a lot of it's being landfilled in the public sector um, because we do not have adequate systems to capture separated food waste from our waste stream. And remember, it's about a third of the waste stream. So most, most of what is even put in incinerators is organic waste. Right. Um, we, we have a couple more minutes here, and there's a couple more things we wanted to hit on. Well, one is, uh, now that you're chair of the Sanitation Committee, what, what does that mean, and what does it mean to exercise oversight over a, a, a massive uh, entity like the Department of Sanitation, largest municipal sanitation department in the c- country? Um, how, how does that work? And, and, and just for us on, yeah. on the outside. Yeah, of course. So what it means is that um, I chair a committee of about 10 folks, and we can have hearings every month where we, we can call upon the department's leadership, their senior leadership, or anybody within the agency that we choose to come and answer questions in, in, for the, to the public. Um, answer our questions, answer the questions of other council members, answer the questions of um, stakeholders and the wider public. And it's meant to be an oversight space. We can use those hearings to ask questions like, why hasn't a marine transfer station been built in Manhattan yet? Or why are we seeing the uh, delays in the commercial waste zones that uh, we're supposed to have bids back from private partners? Why are we seeing an unexpected delay. So we get to go in and ask questions. We can also use that space to talk about the impacts of new legislation, what it would look like, um, to talk about amending legislation. Um, And we can get updates. So we can go and say, hey, what's the status of this? And it's held in a public space space for anybody to come and ask questions, anybody to um, submit testimony. But it's, it's meant to be about transparency. Pivoting, one agency that isn't getting its budget cut is the NYPD. 
your thoughts in this and the mayor's overall approach to emphasizing policing in the way he does. But first, we're going to hear him speaking at a preliminary budget review press conference last month. We'll go to him speaking. Budget is going to be basically flat. There may be a slight decrease uh, in the next uh, a few months, but it's basically going to remain flat. That's the number one concern right now, public safety. What would you allocate to new technology for police work, and what are you looking at as far as improving the technology that they have? We have to do a better job. Um, I'm a big believer in using facial recognition correctly within the confines of the law. I'm a big believer in that uh, we have technology out there that can define uh, now if people is ca- are carrying a gun, we should use that. Uh, we should not le- leave any legal stone unturned to utilize technology to make New Yorkers safe. So that's the mayor on um, first, you know, not cutting the NYPD budget and then on what he plans to do with that money. Comments? Yeah, so I certainly think it was very smart to not go for an outright increase, right? I mean, I think the last couple of years we've seen that there has been a growing national movement that is recognizing that there is there are a lot of evidence-based approaches to addressing violence, the root causes of violence that don't involve armed uniformed officers. Um, and so I think it was a smart move to, to hold, at minimum hold. Um, and I think the, the concern about, you know, hyper surveillance, technological surveillance, I'm certainly somebody who um, is very, very wary and, and usually in opposition to increased surveillance and increased technological surveillance. I think it um, moves us into um, very challenging places. We we struggle just now to, without all of this technology, to um, protect our basic civil rights, to protect our um, freedom of communications and, and information and, and access and adding these layers of um, policing to that and adding new tools to policing really, really worries me. It, it, it really, actually, it's, it's a very frightening future um, given our lack of ability to hold these um, departments accountable for, for uh, stuff that's been existing for a long time. Um, I think in general, when it comes to policing, um, it's, it's no surprise for, for any of my colleagues to hear, but I am very much in favor of always trying to find ways to redirect resources to addressing um, community-based violence, so violence in the home, um, domestic violence, gender-based violence, um, working to uh, deal with restorative justice, working to deal with providing more mental health resources and, and institutions and facilities that are dignified, uh, drug rehabilitation spaces, safe needle exchange spaces. Um, right. You know, we need to look at the reality. The reality is that there are many people who are um, we we have twenty seconds. Yeah, well, I'll just say that's. I, I think those resources could always go in better directions than um, with armed individuals. Always. But okay. Well, uh, Sandy Nurse, uh, City Council Member, District Thirty Seven. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thank you for having me. You know, WBAI is a fave. I, I really support you all. 
free and independent radio is, is, is always the, the thing to stand with. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll be back after a short break. We're going to uh, have a chance to hear from the Pacifica archives from a, a trailblazing uh, women politician, uh, Shirley uh, Chisholm first uh, black woman to run for president. And then we're going to hear from another woman who's uh, made a lot of history, uh, Leslie Kagan, longtime peace activist, who's going to talk about war and peace with us in a few minutes. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Charlton, here with co-host Amba Gagarian. In our uh, final segment uh, this evening, uh, we look at uh, what's uh, going on in uh, Ukraine and the conflict there, and, and also looking back at some uh, important recent history in this country. Uh, with the growing tensions between the U.S. and Russian governments, concerns that direct military clashes between the world's two superpowers could rapidly escalate into a, a nuclear exchange that ends life on Earth as we know it. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, hair-raising, hair-raising headlines have been emanating from Ukraine. And 40 years ago this spring, concerns about a nuclear war were also spiking as U.S. President Ronald Reagan sought to build a new generation of nuclear weapons engaged in strident verbal attacks on the Soviet Union and made public comments that downplayed the seriousness of nuclear war. Millions of people marched against Reagan in the arms race in NATO countries in Western Europe that were on the front line of a possible World War III in that era. And on June 12, 1982, upwards of one million people marched past the United Nations and then gathered in Central Park to demand an end to the arms race. It remains one of the largest single protest events in U.S. history. Here is footage from that day, courtesy of the American Friends Service Committee. And now the time has come, and they have come to speak of many things. From Bologna, Italy, and Beatrice, Nebraska, Edogawa, Japan, and East Harlem in New York City. A great ingathering of people. Some to demonstrate, some to make a beginning, some to challenge, 
some non-violently to bear witness. But sharing a single idea, all governments must stop the madness of nuclear armament. The building of weapons so fast, so accurate, and so devastating that they invite a nuclear first strike. Joining us now is longtime peace and justice organizer Leslie Kagan. Leslie was the coordinator for the June 12th, 1982 rally for disarmament. She's going to take us through some of the history of that event and the impact it made at the time. She's also going to help us think about where we are today and what can be done to revive the peace movement. Leslie, welcome back to WBAI Radio. Hi, hi. Good to be here. Thanks. Yes. Uh, for starters, can you take us back to June 12, 1982 and p- paint a picture of what it was like to be there that day? Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of people uh, listening in were there if you were alive at that point. It was 40 years ago. Um, but it was an, a remarkable day. It was a, a gorgeous spring day, June, you know, mid-June in New York City can be beautiful, and it was. Um, and it was a peaceful day, and it was a absolutely massive outpouring of all kinds of people from all walks of life, uh, multi-generational, multi-racial, from many, many cities and locations all around the country and from around the world, Um, and all in a common effort to put pressure on the uh, world's leaders who uh, were gathering at the UN for a special session that had been convened, the second one that had ever been convened on nuclear disarmament. So it was that uh, sea, wave after wave of people, um, of humanity, uh, crying out, demanding that, um, that nuclear weapons had to be uh, had to be abolished, had to be completely uh, taken away, um, not by exploding them, but by dismantling them. Um, and um, and it was a, an extremely powerful day. The power in that day, though, came from the fact that literally hundreds and hundreds of groups all around the country, particularly east of the Mississippi, um, certainly here in New York City and in the greater New York area, but groups everywhere threw time and energy and effort into the task of mobilizing people and turning out people, which required a basic uh, commitment to educating people. People don't just turn out uh, for a demonstration like that or any other demonstration. They turn out because they understand something about the issue. That means somebody has been doing the educational work and the organizing work. So the day, as important and exciting and moving and historic as it was, it was only one part of a process that began way before June 12th, and in fact lasted way beyond June 12th. Um, But the day itself was fabulous, I must say. (laughs) Tell us more about that process. And uh, I mean, sure. uh, And how'd you do it without email? Yeah, right. (laughs) There's not enough time to go into every detail now, but the quick picture here is that without email, without the (laughs) internet, we had one computer in the National Coalition office that was only used for dealing with financial matters. 
everything else was by phone and fax, remember fax machines, um, and writing letters to people and mailing out material, remember postage stamps. Um, we used all of that. We used whatever technology we had available at the time. Um, it was a national coalition that kind of gave leadership to the whole effort. Uh, there was a tremendous organizing committee in New York City. Uh, and as I said, there were committees formed or some organizations that had already been up and running uh, and working on the issue took up um, the mobilizing, you know, and the organizing work in their locale. And it was really at the grassroots level where um, where the nitty-gritty happened. We helped at the national level, helped nurture that. Uh, we by keeping people informed. Every time we had a wrinkle with the city, the parks department and the police department about permits, we let people know. Every time we want something uh, from that struggle, we let people know. Um, as we had more information to share, we did that. We uh, helped them organize local press events and work with their local media. But the, the backbone, of actually not only the June 12th demonstration, but any mass mobilization that I've ever been connected to, and I've been connected to a lot of them, uh, is the backbone is always what people are doing in their communities, at their workplaces, at their schools, in their religious institutions, at home. Um, That's the backbone of any movement. Right. And and when the Cold War intensified in the 1950s, America's school kids were taught to duck under their desks to avoid the worst effects of an atomic bomb exploding near them. In a moment, we're going to listen to a clip from an educational film called Duck and Cover. I mean, I don't know if you have that clip. I don't know. I can gonna... tell you about it. I was one of those kids, right, who had to duck and cover. It was frightening. Not only that, at least in New York City, where I grew up, I don't know what happened in other parts of the world, of the country. We had to wear dog tags with our name uh, and the the name of our parents, and we were told by teachers that we had to wear them. And you know, we're six, seven, eight years old at the time. That we had to wear them in case. In case the Russians, they didn't even call them the Soviet Union, in case the Russians dropped a nuclear bomb, an atomic bomb on us, and our body was burnt beyond recognition so that the teachers who somehow miraculously survived this um, would be able to tell our parents that we had died. Um, The whole thing was totally unreal and completely frightening. Um, and I'm part of that generation that grew up with that very real and very reality-based fear of nuclear weapons. So in 1982, how did you all handle the challenge of making people more aware of the threat of nuclear war without scaring them so much that they became paralyzed and unable to act? Right. That that was challenge. Uh, you know, there wasn't a magic formula. It had to, I think, our ability to handle that had to do with the fact that we were dealing with people in person, one-on-one. Those local organizing committees would gather 
people together and talk about the issues and explore the issues and explore people's fears. I think there's a parallel right now, um, not only in terms of the, da- the ongoing danger of nuclear war and nuclear weapons, but in the climate crisis, right? How do you also, how do you talk about the climate crisis and the potential for the disaster that an, an ongoing climate crisis, an escalating climate crisis will bring to people all around the world? Um, how do you do that in a way that doesn't demobilize people? That doesn't say, fuck it, you know, excuse me. That doesn't say, you know, people throw their hands up and say, well, what's the point? We have to find that middle ground and we have to keep reminding people that it's only when people get involved. It's only when massive numbers of people stand together and march together and raise their voices and use all their power to demand change. That's that's how we deal with it. That's how we deal with the crisis. That's how we deal with any bad issue. We have to organize, organize, organize. And in the course of that organizing, there are moments when we mobilize. And that's what June 12th, June, June 12th, 1982, was a mobilization movement that happened because of the organizing that was going on. And that's how you deal with people. You have to deal with people where they are and not pretend that their heads or their hearts are in someplace else. You got to deal with them where they are and help them move through a process where they want to be not just marching, but organizing other people as well. And how did the, the major media respond? How did how did politicians respond? What would you say was the impact of the June 12th mobilization inside the halls of power and on the larger peace movement? Yeah, there's a great story in the middle of the afternoon. Um, I don't remember now if it was the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State, but some one of those two guys, and they were both guys, um, issued a press release saying demonstrations in New York City don't uh, affect policy. Well, if we don't affect policy, then why are you issuing a press release? I mean, it was they, uh, the fact that they did that indicated that they knew that we were out there. They heard the voices of people. Um, no one demonstration, no one movement even changes such big policy overnight. It happens because it's part of a cu- cumulative and building effect. Um, there is enough evidence, though, to believe that in the that that we had an impact and strengthened the nuclear disarmament movement here and globally, and that that help feed uh, over the next coming years several real um, uh, you know important steps to curtail to limit um, to control nuclear weapons and the beginning of some reduction let me just make it clear though with almost 14,000 nuclear warheads still on this planet we are far from done with this struggle it only takes about a hundred of them to basically destroy life as we know it on this planet this struggle is very real and advanced in Ukraine have, uh, I think, uh, been a wake-up call, another wake-up call to people that by accident or on purpose, by design or by accident, this thing could get as bad, as horrible, as horrific as what it, what's going on now in Ukraine really is. It could spiral way out of control uh, into a nuclear confrontation um, very, very quickly with unbelievably uh, horrendous outcomes to it. So I just want to use this last moment or two I have here to urge people to remember that there was a time 
when humanity didn't have nuclear weapons. It's all it's 77 years since the first atomic bombs were developed and went off, dropped, of course, by the United States on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, 77 years is a long time, but it's not a long time in the course of human history. Um, we didn't have nuclear weapons for the vast majority of human history. We don't have to have them now. We have to do whatever we can to stop nuclear weapons, and I would just add, to stop war. War should not be the vehicle for settling disputes. Uh, the human race, hopefully, has progressed to the point where there are other ways to settle uh, settle disputes. Right. And before uh, before we go here, um, just two quick questions that you can, uh, I'm sure, uh, hit pretty uh, fast. One, uh, um, uh, this being Women's History Month, uh, your thoughts on uh, whether if we had far more women leaders than we have today, uh, how much of a difference that would make or, right. or not? And, and then also, uh, what gives you hope uh, as someone who's uh, persevered uh, through the decades? Right. Um, I would hope, you know, I would love it. I would love to be able to say having more women in key leadership positions at every level of policymaking would make the difference. Uh, I'm sorry to say I don't think that's true. Um, look at Margaret Thatcher. Look at Golda Meir. I mean, there, there's plenty of women throughout history. It's not it's not about gender. It's not only about gender. It's about politics and, and broader politics and bigger politics, although I think gender politics are essential and critical. Uh, and I do hope more women, more women with good politics end up in these positions, which gives me hope. There are so many young women, especially you young women here? of color, that have stepped up. Sandy Nurse is right there at the top of the list, uh, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, who are bold and and creative and not afraid of the power they're confronting. And that's what we need. Uh, and I hope that women would also bring, of course, agenda analysis and perspective perspective to all the work they're doing, not just, quote, women's issues. Okay, well, we'll have to uh, leave it there. Uh, uh, Leslie Kagan, longtime peace activist, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI this evening. Sure. Thank you. Okay. And that's uh, the end of uh, this week's show. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we'll be preempted next week. And uh, thank you to Reggie Johnson, our uh, board operator. Uh, Amba, what's our uh, uh, going away song this evening? This is In Our Hands by James Taylor actually performing live at the 1992 Rally for Nuclear Disarmament. So enjoy. Might be a little foggy if we're recording. Right in.